This episode of the No Film School podcast is brought to you by Rode Microphones and Blackmagic Design. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Oakley Anderson Moore. And I'm Eric Lures. It's January 25th, 2017, and on this week's show, Miss Sundance? Don't worry, we were on the ground of America's biggest independent film festival, and we'll bring you all the news in this special episode. Welcome to this week's show, not from downtown Brooklyn, New York, but in fact from Park City, Utah, where we have been once again for a whole week covering the Sundance Film Festival. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. And this week, the film industry has its eyes trained squarely on two places, the Sundance Film Festival and the Oscar nominations. So we're going to do the same and devote our entire show to those two topics instead of our regular format. And we will start with the cold, hard facts of Sundance. And I do mean cold because it's freaking freezing up here. What you got, Oakley? Well, let's see. What I can tell you is that we don't have a hard estimate of the attendees yet, but there has been some rumor that not as many people are here the, the, as last year. I'm wondering if that's true or just a feeling, because part of the thing that's different about Sundance this year is that they sort of changed a few of the venues up and they added the Ray. And part of the reason they wanted to do that is that they wanted to mitigate crowds. It's not that they were adding more films, they just wanted to be not so crowded getting to and from. Last year was a kind of a chaotic festival with people getting stuck in half an hour, an hour on a shuttle and not getting in a theater. This year felt a lot more smooth and maybe it's a suggestion of how they kind of rearranged the crowd flow. I totally agree. It did feel a little um, more chill this year in that way. But last year there were over 70,000 attendees. So I guess we'll find out soon um, what the numbers this year actually are. It, it felt more chill, but it was also like... Uh, because it felt more chill, I think it actually stressed me out a little bit more because I was like, what am I doing wrong now? Like, why am I not like freaking out and running from place to place and stressed out about making like a screening? But I did have a colleague who was waiting in one of those tents to get into the Holiday Village, one of the Holiday Village theaters, and there was no one else there. And he's like, oh, wow, this is great. And it did turn out that he was in the wrong location. Oh, I had <laughs> so the same you experience. Have the reverse yeah. experience yeah. as well. I mean, there were a couple, like several actually, ticketing snafus which we had in our own team, like John, a few of his tickets were like misguided. So when that happened to John, I looked through my pile of tickets and was like, oh, these are basically all right. But on the very last one, I guess I wasn't paying that much attention. And I went to a screening that I definitely ordered. And when I got there, there was no one in the tent. And they said, this was last night. So like, basically I had been issued the wrong ticket for the wrong night at the wrong theater. And of course, the festival is so huge. There's so many films going on. I could see how that could happen. And just to give you a breakdown of how many films, there were 897 total festival screenings. So that's 122 feature films, 69 short films, and it represented 29 different countries for features and 53 first-time feature filmmakers, which is cool. And there was also a lot of sophomore filmmakers, which I don't have a number on that, but I did uh, talk to a lot of filmmakers who are here with their second film, and I'll be writing up what they said, which I thought was pretty inspiring to see that many people come back with a second film. But yeah, so there was a, a lot of films to be seen. Lots of cool sophomore features, too, like uh, Nick Pesh with Piercing, uh, who had Eyes of My Mother, and then, of course, Jim Hosking, who did Beverly Laughlin this year, who did Greasy Strangler the year before. So, like, very singular voices coming back with... Yeah, Reed uh, Morano's second yeah, feature Reed was Marano, here. Yeah, Reed Morano, a lot. I mean, Panos Cosmatos, a lot of the ones I actually saw um, were sophomore features, and they were all really strong developments, I thought. Yeah, yeah, and so with just... 
it's crazy that we were able to make so many screenings then in light of how many there are. And it's just a reminder of what a big uh, undertaking putting on a festival like this is, which brings me to numbers I can share that I got about how many volunteers were here this festival. There was 2,163 volunteers, which is like quite an army. And you kind of need them. And for to break down for people who haven't been here, what volunteers do is some of them stand outside in the freezing cold helping you get on the right shuttle to the right theater. Or for they, hours. For hours. And or they are in the theater helping you get there or they just work all around just making sure that this, this actually happens. And what's kind of interesting about the numbers, there's about 1,100 of the volunteers are from Utah. But interestingly, like 991 are out-of-state volunteers, which I think is kind of cool because they always say, why don't you volunteer at Sundance if you're a filmmaker but you've never been to the festival? And I'm like, that would be cool. And if you're looking at it, a lot of people are doing that. It's like a cool way to see films and find out how a festival works and get sort of an introduction if you're just otherwise on the outside. So if you're a filmmaker, that's something you should consider because you could be hanging out with like 900 other potential filmmakers who are volunteering with you. Yeah, and, and you get a free Kenneth Cole puffer coat. Yeah, and you can, you can also meet like, you know, programmers and people that are heavily involved in the Sundance Institute, which is actually, I overheard a volunteer talking about how this was going to be here last year because next year she's going to be here with a film. So it's it's kind of like a, a really good, if Sundance is the place that you want your, your movie to premiere in, then uh, definitely consider volunteering. And I think tomorrow is, or today actually, on Wednesday, January 24th, is Volunteer Appreciation Day for the Sundance. Uh, so I think they also are entitled to private screenings just for themselves and things of that nature. There was a shout oh, out cool. for them the other day after that Sundance trailer that we, we see after before every screening. Uh, so shout out to them. It is really impressive the the way those volunteers are managed. I mean, I can't imagine being in charge of over 2,000 volunteers that are spread out all over Park City that don't really know what's going on. <laughs> it's, it's impressive. Um, and if you do volunteer, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Maybe Ooh, write, yeah. write it up for No Film School. And also bring some really warm stuff because <laughs> a lot of those volunteer suckers are standing out in the snow. Speaking of the snow, I think also one of the reasons it was kind of easier to manage this year is because there was a lot less snow. Yeah. I don't know if you all remember us talking about it last year, but it was a slog and there were power outages and bus breakdowns and all kinds of stuff. This year when we landed, there was like no snow on the ground and it was kind of shocking. Then we got dumped on, which, you know, I don't know, I, I definitely in terms of buzz on the street. Obviously, a lot of people are here to ski and snowboard, and those people were so bummed. Apparently, even after the snow, there wasn't enough of a base for real, like, real kind of good ski snowboard sessions. And um, as if you look up on the slopes, they look really empty. It's something beautiful seeing ski lifts without people on them still going up and down. Uh, which I observed the other day. It was a very ghostly effect. Yeah, creepy, beautiful. Absolutely, yeah. That first day we arrived, I think it was a high of like 48 degrees or something like that. It's warmer than yeah. New York. Yeah. Absolutely. So while, but like while it wasn't snowing very much, it it did dip. Like yeah. that, it did Old zip. go down from 48 degrees. Definitely, it didn't really get higher than 20. I think it, the it next got real cold. three or four days. But I was actually again, I was overhearing a conversation with someone on the bus who was like talking about skiing, and they were well, apparently one of the problems is because it gets hot, like warm and cold so drastically. There's actually like layers of ice that form under the snow when you ski. 
very quickly. So like, there's not a lot of fresh powder. There's oh, just a lot of like ice. Yeah. Yuck. So not fun for skiers. I ran into a woman in line whose daughter is a professional racer. And she said that basically like they had to ship her out. They sent her to California because she can't train here right now. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Uh, and I just want to give a shout out as I was wandering, wandering around cluelessly, aimlessly on Main Street going from a screening or to another interview. I was kind of looking for a place where I could just dip in for a little bit and that I would be welcome at. A lot of these places, you have to be on a certain list. I would tell people I'm John Fusco and that they wouldn't let me in. Uh, <laughs> would you really do that? No, no, I didn't do it. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, that doesn't sound like, get right. out of here. Like, what? Uh, Wait, I feel like we should take a step back and say yeah. that like another just general challenge of the festival, aside from getting around in the snow, is that um, there's not a lot of places to eat mm-hmm. because the, all a lot of the places on Main Street get taken over by brands and these for these big brand activations. Um, and then, as Eric mentioned, they have these lists of who can come in and who can't. And the town is set up for drivers, not walkers. But most of us who come to the festival don't rent cars because it's sort of impossible to get around and park. And so, you know, what we'll do in the first day is like buy a bunch of groceries and then sort of pack our lunches like we're in fourth grade. Uh-huh. But it's it's sort of not easy. So that's why this is. Yeah. Special. So I had to kind of look for a spot to kind of just jump into for a little bit. So shout out to it's a great name. Oh, shucks. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how Irish that name is, but uh, it's very unassuming low key bar slash restaurant on Main Street has a daily chicken fingers and french fries that I kind of lived off of. A uh, very nice daily spot to drop into when you're between interviews or screenings. There are salted peanuts for free that are on the bar and then wind up on the floor. Nice. And it's a very chill spot to step in for 20 minutes or so. It's it's cool that uh, it's nice when you find a place that's cool that lets you in because that's one thing that's kind of frustrating about being at the festival is that there's so many venues or little special events. Some are open to you, some are not. Yeah. How do you get in there? Or somebody in there is getting a, there's famous people, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it curates kind of a weird yeah. vibe. So walking down Main Street, you're like, God, where can I go? Yeah. Sometimes you don't need a table just to go into a place. So it's nice to have something where you can just stand or, you know, just retreat for a few minutes from the cold. Some free peanuts. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned celebrities, Oakley, because of course it's not really what we're here for, but a lot of people come, probably a lot of those volunteers come just for like the celebrity sightings. And we, the New York crew, was on the plane with Maggie Gyllenhaal, so it started straight away. <laughs> did you guys run into anyone else? Uh, I did. Uh, I'd mentioned last week that I'm a big uh, fan of Hamilton because uh, Anthony Ramos and Jasmine Cephas Jones were in Monsters and Men, which premiered at the festival. Uh, I ran. I wouldn't say I ran into them. I ran past them. Uh, <laughs> I ran towards them, uh, along with uh, David Diggs, who also has film here at the festival. I saw Ethan Hawke, Deborah Messing, Idris Elba. Sorry, Liz. Oh. And I, I didn't mean again. Like I saw them in passing. We did not sit down for lunch and have really okay, strong chats. Okay, but if anyone listened to last week's show, they know that an Idris Elba sighting was my most anticipated <laughs> thing, and I didn't see him at all. And I think like almost everybody else I know did. I, I think it's like going to a venue where you may have an uh, interview scheduled and you see everyone else kind of lined up to take their photos in front of a Geico logo or whatever the brand sponsoring the party is. And that's where you kind of see this celebrity influx kind of come Um, and leave as they're taking photos and doing that stuff. I didn't see anyone, but I'm also bad at recognizing people. Unless they were at my screening or was interviewing them, I just can't, I just don't see anyone. Yeah, I mean, most of my celebrity settings were just at press junkets or interviews where a lot of the cast members showed up. Um, I was personally really excited to meet Nick Cage because uh, I saw his movie Mandy and I did meet him, but there was a, a kind of a fiasco at the press day for Mandy and 
I ended up not being able to like fully interview him. I had to wait like an hour and a half after my initial reporting time. And uh, then they paired me up with two other like journalists so we could all ask Nick Cage questions. And then (laughs) only one of them got to ask Nick Cage a question and then he got pulled by his agents. So, and by that time they were all like pretty wiped out too, all the talent. Um, So that was disappointing. Oh, that's lame. Yeah, it's okay. Because uh, I did end up in, in, getting to interview another one of my heroes, Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords, um, who's just like the nicest dude, most humble dude ever. Um, and I like talked with him a little bit just about, you know, Flight of the Concords. And uh, yeah, that was fun. And other than that, I kept seeing Elijah Wood everywhere. Like, because everyone, because <laughs> I went to a lot of midnight screenings, and Spectre Vision is just kind of like killing the game in terms of like building a posse for midnight movies is that his company yeah spectra vision is his company um so like i just see him like running up and down the aisles of the theater giving hugs to people and Aww. like did you he, hug him i didn't know but he, he was sitting like a few rows ahead of me a few times um for mandy and beverly Laughlin, and uh yeah so that was cool yeah speaking of of midnight movies i mean i guess i did have a cool interview with people who are famous Jonas Ackerland, the director of Lords of Chaos, is like this really well-known director. He's directed like, he directed the very first like the Prodigy music video. He's directed like Beyonce stuff. Like every music video you've ever seen, you're like, that's cool. He probably did, and he used to be like in this Swedish metal band, and he's this cool guy. And he directed the Lords of Chaos, Lords of Chaos, which is about the real story of mayhem. And some of the cast was able to join us, and so it was Rory Culkin, Sky Ferreira, and Jack Kilmer, who are all pretty cool actors, actresses, and some of them rising. And it was pretty cool, this conversation. Talk about this really weird, effed up story. I really want to see it. I'm it's glad pretty you cool. said Rory Culkin, because I did see a Culkin at one screening, but I didn't know if it was Rory or Kieran? Hmm. I don't know, but I know four? Rory's okay. here. Cause then it must be Rory. He'll, okay. He's going to be on our podcast. Okay, don't tell him about so this part. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well, I'll quickly add my restaurant shout out too, because um, I found a gem, which was like my haven for the festival. It's called Five Seeds. So if any of you all come next year or are still here, Five Seeds isn't like this random mini mall behind the park theater. You'd never guess, but it's like run by this sweet Australian couple, this like cozy coffee shop with healthy food. Not chicken fingers and fries, but like delicious salads and shakshuka, my favorite. Um, And it was just like, it's so special to find a respite in this this craziness. Um, Because I will admit here publicly, I'm so, this is crazy, that I got so desperate before I found Five Seeds that I actually stopped in a Burger King for the first time (laughs) since I was like six. What? It was so gross. Um, So then I was like, I got to find an alternative. So Five Seeds was great. I went there twice and actually sat down for meals, which is a rarity. And the first time I was right next to Hilary Swank. Mm, yeah. So now that we've kind of given some of the like lay of the land, what it feels like to be here, what are like the general themes you guys have been noticing in terms of either the films or just like what you're hearing on the streets, the cold streets? One thing I noticed right away in the lineup is that this year there were a lot of actor directors, either actors who were trying their hand for the first time at directing, or maybe they were in their film and directing, or they directed a few, but that was... Um, something I saw a lot of and in competition alone a section that's pretty important because it's up for awards there was three films there was Blaze by Ethan Hawke Wildlife by Paul Dano and Burden by Andrew Heckler and of course other things we've mentioned were like Idris Elba Rupert Everett Um, we even had someone on the Shorts podcast with the cool conversation uh, Anna Margaret Holliman she's an actress and she just took on her first directorial short 
oh yeah, actually, I'm recording later today on Indie Episodics um, podcast, and Nash Edgerton, who's a writer, director, Joel Edgerton's brother, did that one too. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and I saw Damsel yesterday, and um, there Does, was there was like a star-studded. It was like a, they're pretty well-rounded cast and then one of the leads was like this guy was like what who is this guy and it was david zellner who's yeah. one of the zellner brothers so <laughs> so they reversed it they went from director to actor yeah yeah yeah. oh he didn't direct no he directed well, direct- yeah oh. but uh but he was like a, a main a big part in this in this feature so and it was good it was it was cool to see yeah i was thinking about like what that might mean um and so i came up with two possible ideas so why there's so many films this year uh with actor directors and from a cynical perspective, you could be like, oh, great. You know, they're programming famous actors now who have made films. But, you know, because those actors were able to get the attention to get their film made and then were able to get it inside. So you can look at it cynically like, oh, gosh, they because they have an audience that you don't have, maybe their film got in or something. That's like the John Fusco view. That is probably <laughs> the John Fusco view. And that's probably partly true in, on every level. But I was also thinking that it could suggest something else as well. Um, about independent film continually moving away from sort of the defined hierarchical roles of like the typical Hollywood set and more about, oh, an actor can be a director, a DP can be a director, an actress could be a DP and kind of just showing that if you have talent in multiple areas, you don't have to just stick to one role and then report to the chain of command ahead of you. And I mean, you see that with Reed Morano, she's director and DP. So I was thinking maybe it's part of this other shift as well where in independent film, people are having more freedom and flexibility to explore other roles that in the past uh, you were considered only, um, you know, available to be one particular type of of creative talent on set. I like that view. Okay. So it's probably a combination of both. (laughs) But but yeah, and in some of those films that are pretty good that have actor-directors and they brought a specific skill set, so it's an interesting development. One thing I've noticed this year just by talking with a lot of filmmakers is the process of doubling up, meaning that a lot of not just directors or actors, but everyone from every kind of spectrum of the film uh, medium are coming with maybe multiple projects. Uh, someone like a composer, Keegan DeWitt, who has did scores for films both on the narrative and documentary fronts, like The Long Dumb Road and Bisbee 17, and actors with multiple projects in the festival, including, which is a really interesting story, uh, this young boy, Josiah Gabriel. He's, I'd say he's about 10, 10 or 11. He has only made three films in his career, and they all premiered at Sundance this week. Wow. So if you want to see his entire filmography, just get down to Main Street today. You could probably do them back to back to back. Um, and of course, also Andrea Riseborough has four films, including Burden, The Death of Stalin, Mandy, and Nancy. So these actors are really saving on plane tickets by having all of their films of the year premiere at the same festival. I saw Andrea Riseborough in uh, in uh, in uh, Mandy, and I'd never seen her before in anything um but she was really great in it and while i've mostly kept my head down in the blood gore nipple piercing and chainsaw duel arena of the midnight movies i've heard some good things classic john (laughs) i've heard some good things about uh many of the films which address the racial issues that are pervading across the country and uh there are a number of films and shorts here this year i saw one of the shorts which specifically address police brutality And one interesting thing to think about is how last year there were a lot of docs that dealt with these issues, and this year there are a lot of narratives. So I think like that's sort of a trend 
uh, to watch with every Sundance is if you're interested in tackling a narrative with an important and timely theme, there's probably not a better place to look than last year's Sundance doc section. Mm. So based off of this year's doc section, for you guys who did see docs, because I only saw one doc, which was Robin Williams. So I don't think anyone's going to be making a Robin Williams biopic. But what do you think we'll see pop up in next year's narrative section based off of the trend of docs this year? I love your hot take. That's really interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about it yet. It's kind of a weird way to look at it, though. Like, you want a filmmaker to go look at the section and then decide what should be important. It's like, in theory, the documentary should be covering, like, important issues of our time. So as a filmmaker... You know, just look at the important issues of our time, and but I like but you the, I, I like the idea that like documentaries in some way are this like bellwether for what narratives oh, would be yeah, 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 the okay. next right. year. And so for, yeah, okay, for gotcha. some of those documentaries too, like uh, last year the uh, documentary about Gawker and the Hulk Hogan trial um, was actually when it premiered at Sundance. I think the Trump inauguration had happened two days before, and then a clip from that speech was edited into the film two days later for its premiere. So there maybe is a feel that the documentary side of covering current social events, uh, we can really get on the scene and maybe turn it around a little bit faster. On the narrative side, we're kind of being inspired by those, getting the funding, and then going into production, which maybe takes another year or so. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And like also just as a source for stories, you know, like, uh, within those broader themes, like if you see a documentary that has a, an amazing story or just multiple amazing stories within that one doc that you would like to focus on for a narrative, um, I think that's a pretty awesome way to go about finding ideas for inspiration for a film. This actually reminds me of another thing I kept hearing, not just from doc filmmakers, but from from all anyone who's dealing a little bit social issue that some of them, especially docs, have been working on their films for upwards of, you know, five, six, ten years. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, in the last year since our U.S. elections, their whole film took on a whole new relevance. Like, it wasn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily trying to make a certain kind of statement, but then their film took on a new depth or a new angle because the whole sociopolitical climate changed. That's been pretty interesting. You see a lot of filmmakers in their intros to the screenings kind of bring that up. Uh, about when we made it, it was a different time period. And of course, while you're watching the film, you can't help but think of where we are currently. Uh, I've noticed that in a few introductions that filmmakers have given so far during the festival. Actually, that's a good segue too to what I was going to bring up in this this you know section about like what we were hearing and what we were noticing. So like last year, as you can imagine, it happened. Sundance was during the or the inauguration was during Sundance. The Women's March happened during Sundance. We talked Liz about it. Liz and I it. were in the CNN Films Lab. Yeah, uh, we we were like watching, watching the inauguration the- in shock with a bunch of <laughs> yeah. other doc makers, and we both participated in the the Women's March here in Park City last year. And then, of course, the whole, you know, set of women's issues and Me Too and uh, Time's Up, like, has happened in this last year. So I was curious what that vibe was going to be like this year. And it was definitely present. I mean, I, uh, my feelers were out for it, but I don't think it was just me <laughs> that noticed. Like, there was a lot of talk about it. Um, but the vibe was really different, and it felt really positive. Like, it felt like a, a, a sea change in a way. Um we had a respect rally on the anniversary of the Women's March here, which wasn't a march. It was just like this gathering. And it felt like, again, kind of positive. Like there were all these speakers, people with films in the festival. 
um, Nick Offerman had this whole hilarious bit. John and I were watching the live stream and he was talking about like many of us, many of us men discovered in the last year that we have ears and that those organs are functional. You know, like people were a little more lighthearted about it um, and it felt really positive. One thing I found kind of weird is that some companies were kind of capitalizing on the movement. So one thing that happens here is you get a lot of like free swag. And so I saw all these people with these Times Up hats that had the Times Up logo from uh, the Golden Globes. And then on the other side of the hat is the Movie Pass logo. So <laughs> Movie Pass was handing out Times Up hats. I don't know how I feel about that. I like those are two movements I strongly support. So. <laughs> I mean they're both great. I, I agree. I mean at least they weren't selling them. Um, and then, of course, in terms of of films, so we got some stats. 42% of all films, features, and shorts were directed by women this year, which is way ahead of the industry at large, obviously, and also bigger than Sundance's own track record, where the past average has been around 25%, so 25% to 42%. I mean, it's been higher in recent years, but... Um, also, there were just like a lot of stories in the festival um, about strong women by men and women. Like two of the the docs that were really popular were the MIA doc about the, the performer MIA and about the performer Joan Jett, who are both these sort of like badass, rebellious female musicians. And those were both made by men. So female stories in general had like a, a strong presence here. Um, yeah, it was it was. An, did you guys like notice any of that stuff? Yeah. I mean, I just um, I just watched Kusama Infinity, which is a documentary and competition, and I'm interviewing the director later today, which is pretty exciting. Um, but that's sort of an interesting film that come out this year because Kusama is an artist who's been around for a long time, and she never really got much recognition until just recently. And, you know, there's like, th- in, in the film they talk about that there's like, in the art world, which is in some ways parallel to the film world, but maybe in some ways not, you know, three to 5% of any collections are female artists, which is actually even more pitiful than the film industry. And Kusama is now the mo- the biggest selling artist in the world, which is kind of an interesting Whoa. Um, story to watch. Um, just at, like, I saw two, two out of 10 of the movies I saw were directed by females. And I'd say that, like, maybe four other ones were uh, directed by men but featured strong female leads um like very strong female leads so in in a way it was interesting for me i think that like i'm not gonna and not touting male directors or anything but it's really interesting to see like the male's perspective of a strong female lead versus the female's perspective of a strong female lead um i think like (laughs) For men, and maybe it's just because I saw a lot of aggressive midnight movies, but the female leads in their stories tended to actually be like more brutal and violent and self-assured, whereas the women, at least in Ophelia... um, I mean, but are they like psycho? Because that's like an old trope, like the crazy no, strong woman. No, I don't is think they're. Necessarily... I don't think they're psycho. I think they're sort of just like independent. One of them was. I mean, both of them were also played by Mia Wachowski, which is pretty funny. <laughs> um, you know, piercing is a hard story to take seriously, but uh, ultimately, it is about like a a woman taking control of a relationship. So, um, but Damsel was the other one that I thought was like really interesting. Um, because I thought it was actually like a much more feminist movie than Ophelia, which was directed by a woman hmm. and featured a strong female lead. Um, because I thought that uh, like, I don't know, the, the subtleties of it were, were just 
better. I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. I don't want to like mansplain it either. So, um, <laughs> I mean, even the title of damsel is kind of interesting because they're playing on it's an ultra like right. damsel yeah. in right. distress. A damsel in distress to- who sort of being pursued by many different men who think she needs saving, but in reality she doesn't need saving at all. And in the end, like she's the one who comes out on, well, I mean, throughout the entire story, she's the one who's like, doing all of the saving. I really so. want the tagline of that movie to be, she put the damn in damsel. But I mean, John, at the same time, what you're saying is like, I feel like a lot of male directors would not appreciate being lumped into one category. Like I've noticed, you said, I noticed male directors are portraying women this, no, this just, way. I feel like the more varieties of portrayals of women by male directors is like more interesting. Mm-hmm. Sure. No, I mean, I, I just mean uh, out of the movies that I saw with female, like protagonists that mm-hmm. men directed, I, uh, I noticed that they were sort of like the the domineering uh, part of the relationship. Like they had a higher status by far um, when you're talking about like acting relationships. Um, and I also heard that Damsel had brought a pony on stage. They did. At the yeah, I'm going to talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So this is one of the festivals, one of the only festivals we attend where a lot of business happens. And part of that is because the the industry comes here. It's close to L.A. Part of it is because there are so many premieres. So, of course, we have to do our segment, The Bottom Line, which, you know, it takes two people to replace Emily Booter. So Eric and I are going (laughs) to tackle it together. Um, It's actually been a pretty slow festival for acquisitions, especially compared to huge early fest deals by Netflix and Amazon last year. But that's not to say there's no news. Uh, Yes, as our own Christopher Boone wrote about earlier this week, MoviePass, a company that we cover quite a bit, just mentioned, uh, has just announced that the company has created a new subsidiary known as MoviePass Ventures that will co-acquire films for theatrical distribution alongside existing distributors. On the news, MoviePass CEO Mitch Lowe explained, given the successes we have demonstrated for our distributor partners in ensuring strong box office in the theatrical window, it's only natural for us to double down and want to play alongside them and share in that upside. Uh, Ted Farnsworth, who's the CEO of MoviePass's parent company, elaborated, we aren't here at Sundance to compete with distributors, but rather to put skin in the game alongside them and to bring great films to the big screen across the country for our subscribers. We're open for business, we're here at Sundance, and South by Southwest is next. <laughs> dun, dun. That was a really interesting piece of news. I have to say, when we announced the MoviePass stuff this last year, I did not expect them to become distributors so soon. Yeah, and it's interesting how they, after now gobbling up some of the market about ticket sales, that they now want to go to that next step and get into a little bit more of the creative side of things. That not only are we going to control perhaps how moviegoers are going to pay for tickets, but now we also want to get into the what they're going to see after they use our MoviePass card to get into that theater. You know, It's a little bit more of a conglomerate, but it's interesting development. Of course, there were a few pre-festival acquisitions. So Netflix came in with three narrative features, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, Come Sunday, and Private Life. There was actually a question about whether they would acquire anything at all during the festival, as they already have 80 original films lined up for release in 2018. And in fact, I've only heard about one Netflix festival acquisition so far, which was Sophie Sartain and Roberta Grossman's doc, Seeing Allred, about the controversial women's rights attorney, Gloria Allred. Amazon Studios came in with Lauren Greenfield's opening night documentary, Generation Wealth, which already has a theatrical release date of July 20th. HBO grabbed Oscar-nominated filmmaker Nathaniel Kahn's Artworld doc, The Price of Everything, just before the festival. 
And Eugene Jarecki's new documentary about Elvis called The King sold to Oscilloscope the day before the festival kicked off. We should also give a special shout out to Oscilloscope, which celebrated its 10th anniversary at the festival. And we all went to their party last night, which was so brodacious it got shut down. By the way, I didn't really realize I put, I put this stuff uh, in our script, but when I just read it, so all the pre-festival acquisitions were documentaries. Interesting to note. Uh, also, as reported on by Variety earlier this week, media investment company 30 West is acquiring a majority ownership in Neon, which if you've heard of Neon, they're a specialist in the independent theatrical marketing and distribution space. Which just, by the way, just opened last year, and there it's part of the whole uh, Alamo Theaters family. Yes, and it's interesting to see how they put out um, from last year Beach Rats and... Um, Ignorant Goes West, along other titles, and 30 West and Neon collaborated on Itania, which just came out and is now up for a few Academy Awards. One component of the partnership is the acquisition of SR Media's interest in the company, and CAA negotiated the deal on SR Media's behalf. So yeah, I mean, they made this big announcement at Sundance about their merger, and then Neon 30 West kind of came out with a bang right away. They made the first eight-figure deal of the festival. So they partnered with AGBO, which is the new progressive production company launched by the Russo brothers, on a $10 million deal for the worldwide rights to Assassination Nation, which is Sam Levinson's film from the Midnight section about what happens when personal details of everyone in a small town start getting leaked online. Sounds like sort of like a horror gossip girl. (laughs) And then Neon 30 West also acquired police shooting drama Monsters and Men by first-time writer-director Rinaldo Marcus Green for an undisclosed amount. And they had, Yes, and they also had purchased a Colette, which premiered earlier this week in the festival, and I believe that was the first purchase of their newfound collaboration. A couple other acquisitions we heard about. Search, a, a film starring John Cho and told entirely via computer screen, sold to Sony Pictures for $5 million bucks, and Steve James' 10-part episodic work, America to Me, sold to Stars. And just today, we learned that Magnolia and Participant teamed up to purchase worldwide rights to the wonderful Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, appropriately titled RBG, by my friends Julie Cohen and Betsy West, and produced by CNN. I was surprised that I hadn't heard of any buys by A24 yet, which really surprised me because they were like one of the hottest indie distributors last year with the disaster artist Lady Bird and the Florida Project. I don't know if that says more about the company, the overall market, or the festival, but I'll definitely be keeping an eye on whatever A24 is going to do next. Yeah, I think they have a film called Eighth Grade here, which has been getting a lot of buzz, and they kind of came to the festival with that already in their lineup, and people are already comparing it to Lady Bird coming of age story as well, so... That will be something talked about, I guess, for months to come as well. A couple other festival news items. We're not doing our regular grants section today, but I do want to mention a really cool opportunity that was announced during Sundance. If you've got an original feature-length live-action screenplay of any genre that feasibly can produce with an all-in budget of up to $1 million, which a lot of you probably do, definitely look into BET and Paramount's new Project Create. That's C-R-E number eight. The winning screenplay of Project Create will be purchased for 55000 bucks and made into a feature film and will also be the subject of a one-hour BET doc special about the making of. The catches are that you must have earned less than 10000 bucks as a screenwriter or director for theatrical films or TV, and if you win, you must live in or relocate to LA, Atlanta, or another US city for up to seven months during production. But um, we'll put a link with all the details in this week's podcast post. And the Sundance Feature Awards haven't been announced yet, as I think the ceremony's tonight, but the Shorts Awards were given out on Tuesday, and I think it's cool that they get a special night. Like John was saying on a previous show, that he was afraid that Shorts might not get as much attention now that there's an episodic section, but this way they kind of get their own shine. 
Um, eight awards total were handed out. The short film Grand Jury Prize was awarded to Matria by Spanish writer-director Alvaro Gago. And the short film Jury Award for U.S. Fiction went to Hairwolf by fellow Brooklynites and friends of No Film School, director Mariama Diallo and producer Valerie Steinberg. Congrats, everybody. Woo! Blackmagic Design creates the world's highest quality products for the feature film, post-production, and television broadcast industries. Blackmagic Design's DeckLink capture cards launched a revolution in quality and affordability in post-production, while the company's Emmy award-winning DaVinci Color Correction products have dominated the television and film industry since 1984. Founded by world-leading post-production editors and engineers, Blackmagic Design is dedicated to allowing the highest quality video to be affordable to everyone, so the post-production and television industry can become a truly creative industry. The all-new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones is the ultimate on-camera shotgun microphone. The VMP Plus is jammed packed with features, including an automatic power function, perfect for the run-and-gun shooter, which automatically turns the microphone off when unplugged from the camera. A built-in battery door, which makes replacing the battery a breeze, plus it won't get lost. Multiple power options, digital switching, which will ensure user has ultimate capture of the audio signal at the source, reducing post-production and editing times, including a two-stage high-pass filter, a three-stage gain control, a high-frequency boost, and a safety channel, which will help ensure the signal does not clip when unexpected spikes occur. That's the VideoMic Pro from Rode Microphones. I had a really fun group conversation with a bunch of shorts filmmakers this festival. Um, They were super thoughtful and articulate, and their films were all really great, and sometimes with shorts, you know, there's such a variety, they can be a little hit or miss per, for your, per your particular tastes, or at least that's my experience. I know I've talked to John about this. Um, and the, and, but what was cool too is that within our conversation, there was so many different formats that people shot on. Well, yeah, we actually got provided uh, a sort of stat list from Sundance and Canon uh, about all the cameras and lenses that were used by filmmakers at the festival. And so one of the biggest takeaways we found is that Ari is preferred at an insanely higher rate than Red. Um, 15 films reported shooting with a Red camera as opposed to the 90 which shot with an Ari. Wow. So, you know, I don't know how much of a debate this is anymore about Ari versus Red, but uh, Ari clearly takes the cake here. In fact, the Ari Alexa was the most popular camera among filmmakers in the festival, while the most popular lens was the Canon EF series. While Midnight's, which I mostly went to, preferred sort of the character that a Coke lens would give you. That's because many of these are shot on anamorphic lenses over spherical lenses. Uh, those who have been championing a comeback for film will also be disappointed to hear that out of 247 movies that we uh, got statistics from, only three of those were shot on film. So I don't know what that says. I guess like independent features are not having an easy time making the transition back to film. Whereas, you know, we've seen Dunkirk and uh, more bigger budget movies shooting on film. The indies aren't really ready to make that step back yet. I had a short filmmaker in the podcast with the film Mud that was shot on 16 millimeter. Okay. Which was really lent to it, but it's a short. You That's, know, yeah. Another, to... the, another one of the movies that shot on film was a short uh, for Anna which ended up winning a special jury prize. So, you know, Maybe it's easier for short filmmakers to use film because they're, yeah, they're dealing with (laughs) less stock. But um, as far as features go, uh, only Ren Boys and the highly buzzed about We the Animals shot on film. But speaking of shorts, only 14% were shot with a DSLR. And I'm assuming this also means micro four thirds, but I'm not positive. 
I know that Micro Four Thirds are more popular these, these days than DSLRs, um, but this is kind of crazy considering that shorts are supposed to be these low-budget affairs. Uh, it seems like if you want to stand out, you're going to have to go with a cinema camera of some sort, and that can be like something as cheap as a C200 or a C300 or whatever, probably better for low-budget filmmakers than jumping up to Aries or Reds. Um, but that being said, I shot my short on an Ari, and it wasn't that expensive. So Yeah, I mean, if you can rent, you don't have to buy yeah. the Ari. So, like, definitely look into it if you have a short that you're really passionate about. Consider making that jump to a cinema camera. Sony cameras, however, were used on 28 films, while only one film was shot on a Panasonic, which uh, was a shock to Charles Hayne, I remember reading. Um, Well, he was saying since the the EVA-1 came out this year, he's imagining that these stats are really going to shift next Mm -hmm. year because it's a cinema camera. We'll see. I think, like, a lot of this is because... Films that shot with Sony cameras, like the FS5 or whatever more cinema quality Sony cameras could also use, like the A7S, and get like a dual camera thing going on. Um, so if you're considering getting a Micro Four Thirds camera, that's something that you probably want to consider, is that you know a lot of these features that are shot on cinema quality Sony cameras are being used in tandem with Sony Micro Four Thirds cameras, whereas... Panasonic's cameras, cinema cameras, aren't really showing up yet. Um, so the GH5 probably isn't as worthwhile in that sense. Um, but just another thing for you to consider when going down that line of trying to buy a Micro Four Thirds camera. So, John, on your short, you mentioned you used an Ari. Uh, did you rent that? Yeah, I rented it. I rented it um, with like a package of vintage Lomo anamorphics and like uh, I forget what the monitors were, but like monitors and diopters. And Ari got us all that stuff for like a really good deal. They made it really easy for us. I think it was like something like twenty one hundred dollars for the whole package for an entire week. So it's it's pretty good, and um, it's yeah, it's definitely doable. You just got to be resourceful and reach out to uh you know do your research talk to other talk to everyone on your crew that may have worked with ari before and then like if they have worked with ari reach out to that same sales representative and um from there you know you can find some connections that could help you out they're always willing to help you and i think that's maybe another reason why we see so many features shot on Ari's uh, in the independent world is because they're really good about, you know, helping you out. Whereas Red isn't really a rental company or they don't really have like a rental source in the same way that Ari Rental does. So, yeah. So if you've all been listening to our festival episodes, you know that we've taken on a very, very highly regarded awards section of our own. Um, So the No Film School Awards this year... Let's start with those coming from Mr. Eric Lewers. Okay, so these awards I think I'm going to give out every year going forward, and they're not going to change depending on the film that's uh, screening. (laughs) Uh, My award for most emotional movie about funny people is David Wayne's A Fugile and Stupid Gesture, which will be premiering on Netflix this Friday. Uh, It's about Doug Kenny, who was the co-founder of the National Lampoon magazine and the whole brand that led to uh, radio shows, live performances, and of course the famous film franchise, including Animal House and Caddyshack. Uh, It's actually a very funny movie, but it becomes 
somewhat tragic if you follow what happens to Doug Kenny in his life, who, after battling a severe drug addiction, uh, eventually takes his own life in 1980. So while it is still a very funny movie from David Wayne, and it is what you've come to expect from his filmography, it does have some more emotional depth than I expected going in. My second award is for Most Inventive Cinematography and Editing, which is a less fun-sounding category, but still very, very valuable. Uh, would go to Ramel Ross's Hell County This Morning, This Evening, which is a kind of experimental documentary, which has so much going on with superimpositions, time lapses, associative editing, archival footage, cinema verite, and pretty much any other kind of interesting, really kind of experimental camera choice that you can think of. It's in here over a very fast but extremely rich and enjoyable 72 minutes and there are images that I'm still thinking about and it's gonna stay with me for quite a while. My two awards. I know you're all on the edge of your seat. I'm opening the envelope. My first one is the Fuck the Critics Award. It goes to Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley, which if you listened last week, you heard was one of my most anticipated. Now it was also in a lot of other most anticipated lists. And then the reviews were really mixed. Um, And some of them were like, I felt like the general gist of the reviews were like, it's ambitious, but not that good. And I actually loved it, even though I had high expectations. And you know what? It's not for everyone. Like, it's really weird. And it's really pretty racially charged. Um, It's a little bit like Get Out, except it actually is a comedy. So basically, there's this, um, this telemarketer played by Lakeith Stamfield. Um, and he was excellent in it. And he kind of like, he's kind of like this loser and he gets this telemarketing job and he's not very successful at it until this Danny Glover mentor character leans over and tells him that he has to start using his white voice um, on the calls. And it's hilarious because then he becomes overdubbed by David Cross, the comedian. And so it's pretty bizarre, but it's like once he starts using his white voice, you know, his sales are like skyrocketing. And the whole thing is like this really, like it's a big farce. Um, and it's like kind of skewering everything, capitalism, racism. Um, but with this huge, uh, level of attention to detail and sort of bizarre elements like you have to buy into it but it's I think it's like the most inventive thing I've seen in a long time and I think with you know us we're seeing so many films and it can get to this point where you're like yeah maybe I've seen this before but you definitely have not seen this one before so that's amazing yeah it's really something um and it's by the way also another reviewer was like it tries to be funny but it's not but I was cracking up. Like, for example, there's all these little details like um, the most popular show on television is called I Got the Shit Kicked Out of Me. And it's like people <laughs> being beat up on camera. Like, it's absurd. Um, anyway, now on the total opposite side of the spectrum, my golden tissue box will be presented to Alexandria Bombach, who directed On Her Shoulders, um, which... I have to, so it's a documentary about the Yazidi genocide um, by ISIS. And when I, and the the protagonist is is a victim of sex trafficking. And when I read the description, I fully admit I was like, oh no, here we go. Another really depressing documentary about war that we can't do anything about. And I guess I'm going to see it because she's a good filmmaker. And you know what? I'm a jerk because it was so good. It was so excellent. And it, was it did an amazing job of not being war porn it was this empowering story of this woman who a really young woman who's only 23 now who was this insane victim I mean the, the victimization of her was insane 
And if I were her, I'd be proud of myself for getting out of bed in the morning once I escaped the war. But she goes on to say, I actually will not rest until the rest of my people are saved. And this farmer girl who was never educated becomes like a global activist for the Yazidi people. And I was sobbing the entire time. There wasn't a dry eye in the theater. Even when the director and an entire you know crew got up, they were all crying. And the sweetest part of the whole thing is that when I went to the bathroom afterwards, I was like covered with tears. And the person who was like handed me a tissue was Alexandria Bombach's 84-year-old grandmother who came for the <laughs> screening. So um, anyway, it's one of those movies I just, I felt like, wow, everyone needs to see this. My first award is Loudest Documentary, which goes without a doubt to Michael Dweck's The Last Race, which is both loud and visuals, um, but especially in sound, it's this impressionistic, kind of immersive, dreamy, weird trip into the very last stock car racetrack on Long Island. And I did an interview with Michael, and visually it's like he he soldered on cameras to all of the cars, but he also did that with microphones. And he recorded like hundreds of different sounds of these um, stock cars racing and the movie is so loud it's super cool it's like there's classical music but then there's like vroom like just that was a week and it was like vroom like but it was so loud people in the cinema I was in the very back and people were like clutching their eardrums <laughs> but it was awesome the next word I have is best use of a cardboard cutout which uh, I was trying to get as specific as possible so there's a really cool documentary called 306 Hollywood and it's in the next section which is the first time they've ever had a documentary in the next section and it's super interesting it's it's it follows the director, which are brother and sister. They go to their deceased grandma's house and they kind of excavate her life and bring to life. And it's a rumination on kind of life and death and all this stuff. But it's super creative. They have dance sequences and bizarre visuals and all this interesting stuff. But at the premiere, they had a cardboard cutout of their grandmother's head and they put one on every single seat in the theater, which is a very bizarre visual <laughs> so to weird. walk into the theater and kind of set up the scene for this magical realist documentary. It was cool. Great award. That's going to be highly competitive next year, the best use of the cardboard cutout. We'll see. You know, I don't know if it's going to be as competitive as my first award, which is best use of horse. <laughs> um, Go on. This award goes to a film I really enjoyed, which was the Zellner Brothers' Damsel. It's, as I was saying, it's a really hilarious feminist anti-Western that is kind of almost Shakespearean in a way. The movie bolsters some incredible and hilarious performances from Robert Pattinson, who kind of deserves an award himself for distancing himself from a debut in a shitty teen franchise, uh, because he's really <laughs> done that with this movie and many other of his other films over the past couple years. And Mia Wasikowska, who was also here for Nicholas Pesh's insane sophomore feature, Piercing. But the real star of the film was a miniature horse named Daisy, who played the miniature horse Butterscotch. There were other regular horses in the film, but Daisy really took the cake. As Pattinson's character explained in the film, having a miniature horse is a great conversation starter. It also came out on stage at the end for the Q&A with the full <laughs> casting crew, and uh, it was exciting, to say the least. How did they get her here, I wonder? Uh, well, they shot the movie in Park City and in, in, in the mountains of Utah, so I imagine that it's it's a very small horse. She's local. Um, she's she's uh, a service animal. And um, I think she's kind of used to these sort of things by now. She's uh, a service animal. She, she could have ridden the, the shuttle yeah. <laughs> to the screen. Yeah, yeah. That's a funny that that's a theme because on a side note, the, the um, opening night of Slam Dance was called Pick of the Litter and it was a whole film about service animals. There you go. Coincidence? So, I don't know. What's your next award? I'm, I'm literally on the edge of my seat. Well, so 
I'm kind of trying to decide between. I might do three awards, oh, but boy. I'll keep it brief. Uh, my second award is the most midnight midnight movie, which clearly goes to Mandy, which is something I've talked about like three times already. And it's did actually you like it. I forget. I did like Just it. Uh, it's actually currently the highest rated film on Rotten Tomatoes out of Sundance. Uh, is that because you out? keep going on and <laughs> no, I have no, I have no it's been influence. Rated Forty-seven on times by John Fusco. Um, so yeah, you know, I talked about it in our preview show, and it pretty much blew me away. I've never seen anything like it. Panos Cosmatos has a really dark and inventive mind. He blends sci-fi with horror and fantasy and comedy. And it's just this super disturbing, brutal metal psychedelic film that doesn't hold anything back. There's a chainsaw fight, a tiger on acid, satanic cults who use horns to call a gang of Hellraiser type bike bikers to like kill people. It's, it's really crazy. We were going to do a whole section on our most interesting Q and A's and interviews, but um, because we're here at Sundance, we're actually about to have another group come in here for a podcast recording. So I'm just going to say that there's going to be tons of excellent content. I think we got some really excellent, high quality, interesting interviews this year. And we'll, you know, again, we'll link to all of that. Um, and there's so many anecdotes. Maybe we'll share some more next week. But in the meantime, we can't let this episode go without talking about the other huge movie news of the week, which, of course, was the Oscar noms. Sure. So now that you uh, know about some possible Oscar contenders for next year, as promised, we won't let you go without this little news from this year's big awards, since the official nominees were announced on Tuesday. And while they made some really great calls for the most part, there were a few glaring holes. The most obvious, of course, is the exclusion of the Florida Project in every single category except for Best Supporting Actor, which Willem Dafoe got nominated for. And if they hadn't nominated him, then there probably would have been riots. But, you know, it's strange to think that they only nominated nine films when they could have included 10. So it's almost like they deliberately left it out for some reason. So weird. So that full list includes Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, The Shape of Water, and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. The most nominations went to Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water with 13. And while Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig were both snubbed at the Golden Globes, the Academy Awards made up for it by nominating them both for Best Director. Gerwig and Peele joined Del Toro, who won the Globe, Paul Thomas Anderson with Phantom Thread, and Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk. Interestingly, PTA is the only director in the group to have been previously nominated. Wow. Yeah, Gerwig and Peele are both first-time filmmakers themselves, so that's a pretty awesome honor to have. It's a new have. day, baby. At 22, Call Me By Your Name star Timothy Chalamala was the Chalamet. youngest Chalamet. He's the youngest actor to be nominated and would be the youngest actor to ever win the award. While at 88, Christopher Plummer is the oldest actor to earn an Oscar nominee. I uh, love that. The to, oldest and youngest. It's, it's an acting nominee. So Plummer was nominated for the best supporting role for the role he took from Kevin Spacey and All the Money in the World. And talking about old people, Agnes Varda <laughs> is the oldest actor ever Oscar nominee at 89, picking up a nod for co-directing the documentary Faces Places. And Eric pointed out earlier that she also was um, given the honorary Oscar earlier this year, so she might be one of the only directors to be given an honorary Oscar and nominated in the same year. So as, you know, as we said, this is a more inclusive year, but at the same time, it sort of I don't know. There were only four minorities nominated for their acting work this year. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya, who was nominated for Get Out, which is pretty awesome. Denzel Washington, Octavia Spencer, and Mary J. Blige. And that's down from seven minority nominees last year. 
Jordan Peele's nomination for Get Out makes him only the fifth black filmmaker to be nominated for Best Director, and Greta Gerwig's nomination makes her only the fifth female director to ever be nominated, and the first in eight years. Yance Ford of Strong Island also made history by becoming the first openly transgender man to win a nod, thanks for his documentary, Strong Island. I also want to give a huge shout out to Rachel Morrison for being the first female DP ever to be nominated in the cinematography category for her gorgeous work on Mudbound. And as I said, in a post I was quoted in on Grok Nation, which for those of you who don't know, is Mayim Bialik's widely read, strangely widely read blog, um, the Academy changed its voting pool, as we reported earlier this year, and it seems to be paying off. Despite what John said about the acting categories, the nominees are finally starting to reflect the population at large in almost every major category, you know, including, again, directing, cinematography. Of course, the work should speak for itself, but it really feels to me like an exciting time for filmmakers and moviegoers alike. And yet, once again, I was not nominated for anything. Oh, next year we'll give you one of our No Film School Awards okay. for least nominated director. <laughs> I hope it's best use of horse. Worst, it's like worst use of horse, more likely. <laughs> there were hardly any horses in your film. That's true. But what about next year's film? There'll be a new film. I'll add more horses. Oakley's going to make a film about corn. Probably, actually. <laughs> Anyway, it's a really um, big help to all of us in getting through these very long, very cold, very demanding days at the festival to know that you're out there listening and reading the work. And um, along the same lines, we have to give a major, major shout out to Chris Boone, our longtime writer who pinch hits and helps edit uh, during the festival. Um, We really couldn't do it and be as productive without him. So, Chris, we love you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. And of course, we, again, we gathered so much content. We're going to continue putting up Sundance coverage through next week and maybe beyond. And the podcast we've been doing will be going up for the next couple months every Monday. So please check everything out on nofilmschool.com. Yeah. And Liz, don't forget to remind them to subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you so choose to subscribe to on. And rate us five stars if that's on iTunes because uh, it helps us get some visibility and of course stay in touch we're all on twitter i'm at liz film i'm at oaks wagon hey that's mine <laughs> she's at eric lures and i'm also at jim underscore john underscore jim 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 oakley what's your twitter handle at oaks wagon gotcha. anywhere the volkswagen will go we're all at no film school see you next thursday 